I need to tell you that I have no need for a calendar to tell me what time of the year it is. My body and my brain combined to tell me that school year is beginning. It's an exciting time. It's a wonderful time. I hear my colleagues saying I can't wait until the students return. But a part of me, even though I love my job, a part of me always is anticipating the wall as it comes. The avalanche of emails, the rising tide of committees, uh, appointments of all sorts, and the burdens that are part of the wonderful job we have here to do. And so what happens to me is that my dreams become stranger and stranger during the night. And I thought I would report to you one of my dreams. Um, it was uh, just a few weeks ago, I was driving in my dream on a small road, a narrow road, and the road getting, was getting narrower and narrower. And I looked ahead and there was no place to go except the road was curving into a pond. I turned around to look and to see if I could back away and there was no road behind me. I looked to the right and the pond now was made of, actually comprised of milk, not of water. It was a white milk pond and my right tires were sinking deeper into it. <clears throat> this was getting to be a difficult situation and I realized, and I don't know how I realized, but this was a baptismal pond. People were being baptized in the milk. And then I looked to the right, sounds like I'm reading from Revelation a little bit, I looked to the right, a large tent, like a revival tent meeting, uh, was there and a flap opened and I saw a preacher in a big black robe gesturing wildly and carrying on and to the great shouts and joy of the congregation, he was announcing the establishment of a new denomination. They're distinctive, they had settled upon it was that the word in the Bible that they had read that some people pronounced Galilean should be pronounced as Galilean. And this was the rock upon which they were founding their future right there. And that's when I kind of spun to the edge of the bed. I woke up and I thought, September the 5th must be very close. I can't take any more of this. <clears throat> but the book of Jude, Why Jude? I've already been told by several people it's never been preached on in this chapel. I have some little suspicions as to why. It is not for the faint of heart. But I want to tell you that it wasn't that uh, Jessica asked me to preach this morning and I said to myself, now what shall I say to this community now that I have its ear for a time? What really had been happening was that uh, during the month of June, I had been sort of soaking in this book and praying through it, studied through it. It just seemed so rich and so encouraging and so bracing and so refreshingly true. And I found myself thinking, how can I share something about this? And it wasn't much longer until Jessica asked me. And I thought, well, I'm gonna trust the providence of God I'm going to go through with this. But how even to begin with this book? I'm not going to try to cover everything in it. I'm going to follow a little bit of um, advice that I have gathered from a television show that I have enjoyed watching. Uh, 
taped several episodes of it. It's called My Classic Car. And a fellow by the name of Dennis Gage with a gigantic curved mustache comes and interviews car owners. And usually there is quite a deal made of the outside of the car, what color it is, uh, the, the modifications have been made to the tires, the wheels, what kind of modifications to the dashboard, all sorts of modifications, the interiors, exotic, amazing, incredible cars, usually American muscle cars. And then there's a point at which the conversation turns. And he says, now what's under the hood? It's like that's the payoff moment now. And for all car buffs and aficionados, you're kind of waiting for that, and the hood opens, and then you see what kind of engine drives this thing. I thought I would just use that division of labor, you might say, to talk about the book of Jude and share a little bit with us. First of all, there's the obvious, there's the overt, there's the open message of it, which is bracing enough. I just want to point to three things that you heard yourself. First of all, the first imperative right there is to contend, to contend for this faith that was delivered once for all, to contend for it. And uh, being interested in Greek, I've found this verb used only once in the New Testament, epiagonizomai, to wrestle with intensity. A comment to you about that. I don't have as my personality a terribly uh, contentious person. Regina and I, there's my wife right there, we uh, have often had this discussion that we are opposite personalities. You know the fight-flight syndrome or the op in options that we face when we hit difficulty? We know who's which in our family. She's the fight. I'm the flight. I avoid conflict. I run from uh, unpleasant situations. I do not look for a contest. But Jude here is telling us that will not be an option for, for the believers of Jesus. Because there is in every age, there was in that age, there is now, there has always been, and as long as the Lord tarries, there will continue to be the absolute necessity for all of us to put our shoulders into this struggle which will require all of our energy. And it will be a struggle to contend for the faith that was once delivered. I'll tell you, lots of folks are interested in faith and talk of faith. It's another thing altogether to defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It speaks of the apostolic message, the message of the cross and the resurrection, the message of a transformed life and holiness. You know, this is what the, the New Testament presents to us as the very truth of God, and it's the faith once delivered. Much has been made by some of John 16, 13. The idea that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all kinds of new truth and lead us into all sorts of directions that we've never anticipated before. And actually, I just misquoted that intentionally to you. It's not that the Spirit will lead us into new truth. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. The truth has already been set in trajectory. The truth, the boundaries have already been laid. Yes, the Spirit helps us adapt to circumstances and situations. Contextualization is a wonderful and necessary thing. But nothing that moves beyond the arc of what was originally delivered is actually truth. 
If it is utterly new and discontinuous with what's been, what has been delivered, then it is not new truth. It is other than truth. Contend once for all, or contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I find it interesting next then that the primary opponents in this letter, and I here in, uh, want to give credit to Ruth Ann Reese for the language that she chooses in her commentary to speak of these folks, she simply speaks of them as the others, the others. These are the ones who are the ungodly ones referred to in this epistle. And it turns out that the others are actually inside the ranks of the people of God right here being addressed. How discouraging is that? Um, they're not, it's not that the challenge is always out there. Oftentimes here, and I think many times in our own lives, we discover the challenge is in here among us. This is actually sometimes where the most difficult uh, agony and labor is to be spent. Um, as you do, I like to watch sports bloopers, you know, where people run the wrong way, throw the ball the wrong direction. I saw a pitch the other day. It, was, it made me laugh, so I almost fell out of the chair. A pitcher, perfectly, you know, a professional pitcher, you know, somehow the ball just slips out of the hand and the ball just floats over halfway into a dugout, and everybody pretends not to have seen it. But you can't pretend for long. And finally, you see them, everybody finally beginning to laugh. But more painful bloopers, you know, the agony of defeat type bloopers, where a soccer player, this happened recently, was just kicking the ball back to his goalie. No other uh, opponents on the field at all. And in chipping the ball back to the goal, he chipped it over the goalie's head and into the goal to score for the other team. And I love the way that the cameraman went right up close to the faces of these characters here. The agony, unbelievable, you know, to have pulled for the wrong, to have actually contributed to a score for the, op for the opposing team. Or imagine on a football field, if you're in the huddle and a play has been called and then the quarterback says something like this, by the way, there are 11 guys on the other side of that ball, but I just want to warn you, three or four of us on this team, even though they're wearing our jerseys, are, pulling, are going to be pulling to go in the other direction. What an interesting game that would be. Again, the opponent is not simply on the other side of the ball. The opponent is inside the huddle. How frustrating, how difficult, how disorienting it must be to go through that experience and to be living that kind of tragedy. And yet this has been the tragedy that the people of God have had to face generation after generation, millennia after millennia. In fact, our writer Jude goes all the way back to the Old Testament to mention folks within the people of God who were not accepting the truth of God. So this is, you might say, the outward message of Jude, the obvious message of Jude, the overt message of Jude, encouraging us, warning us to hold true to and to defend that faith that was delivered to us once for all. But like Dennis Gage, who after having walked around a car several times, finally says, can I look under the hood? I'd like to open the hood on Jude 
And I want to point out something that many have noticed. It's a very surprising thing. Once you have gone back and forward through this book and through it and have examined all the different ins and outs of it, something begins to emerge that you find yourself almost rubbing your eyes over. Scholars like Leon Morris, well-known Anglican Australian evangelical scholar, all the way over to a Catholic scholar like Seslaus uh, Speak, a French Catholic biblical scholar, and all kinds of folks in between, this broad spectrum of folk, have discovered the same thing. I'll just tell you right out front what it is. It's the theme of love. And you think, love in this book? And I want to say, yes, love in this book. In the first three verses of Jude, what you'll find are, is the word love used in three different forms. <clears throat> and it's unusual. It's as if our writer here has charted out in a way of speaking that is not common in the rest of the New Testament. First of all, we have this way of introducing <clears throat> the letter here and the readers. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I think the way, I think an interesting piece to pick out of this is that beloved in God the Father is actually language that does not show up anywhere else in any of our New Testament writings. That exact phraseology <clears throat> seems to be fresh with our writer here, beloved in God the Father. Some would even put the syntax of that verse together to, to read more paraphrastically like this, those who are called because you are beloved in the God the Father and therefore kept for Christ Jesus so that love, the belovedness by God of these readers becomes the central feature of who they are. We are beloved by God. That's why we're special to him and that's why he will keep us and preserve us. We are beloved by God. <clears throat> and then the salutation. And I would urge everyone never just to treat things as worthless uh, throwaway words. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now you've read enough of your New Testament to be acquainted with and familiar with. May grace and peace be multiplied. That's a, that's a dual expression that's very common. Our writer here, Jude, does something no other biblical letter writer does by adding in love. And may love be multiplied to you. This is, means it's a gift from God. This means it's something that God does. May love be multiplied to you. And then the very first word of the body coming out there is beloved. He introduces his very message by calling beloved. And he's going to repeat that two more times. Beloved, beloved, beloved. Now, I don't know how many of you were raised in the church. I was. And for me, certain language just wears down and tires out. And, you know, I remember when I was, uh, when our little boy was trying to learn to pray. And we were trying to teach him how to pray. And he got the idea that what praying was is just piling lots of religious words together uh, until somebody tires out, I guess. That's how that works. And I remember one of the special little prayers he prayed. He ended it with, and all the power, and all the glory, and all the honor. Give it to me, oh God, he said. 
But we have here a prayer that should mean something and the belovedness that shouldn't be worn down. And just because we've heard dearly beloved at the outset of weddings, I think what we've lost is this actually means, hey, y'all, God loves you. May I say it? Beloved, beloved, can you receive it? Beloved, beloved. And this writer is saying, before I will get on to the business of what I'm going to have to say to you, it's going to be tough stuff. I begin by saying, beloved, God loves you. God loves you. Then it's easy to lose track of something as we push through the body of this letter. The ungodliness of these others is just breathtaking, grievous, so very, very sad. On every score, I think there are probably about 20 to 25 different descriptions of all the moral corruption that is part of the lives of these others. And yet, I think something interesting emerges then, though, as we examine and categorize what's going on, and this again is something that has been noticed by others, and I tag along and agree, and that is this. When we begin actually capturing the descriptions of all of these moral failures and faults, they begin to align in a very interesting way with the opposite of the description that we find throughout the New Testament for what real love actually is. These people are described as boastful and proud. We're told that love is not boastful and proud. These people rejoice in divisions and just celebrate divisiveness. Love seeks holy union. These people are selfish, and one of the signs of selfishness, or several of the signs of selfishness, is unending complaint and grumbling. Never happy. Why? Because little old me can never be satisfied. I'm a black hole into which everything must pour, and I will never be satisfied. We're told, though, that love does not seek its own way. These people are violators of other folk. And they violate people at all different levels, including and especially sexually, breaking through all sorts of barriers and boundaries that are holy and appropriate. What love does is love seeks to protect and preserve and upbuild the other for what is best for the other, not what is useful to me. And so I think it's quite, uh, quite conceivable that having begun with love, although he doesn't quite say it in the way that we might think of it, he's now describing actually the actual antithesis of love in all the different behaviors that we see being mapped out so graphically here, which I think then makes perfect sense why he says then, these people are blemishes on your love feasts. Places when you come together to celebrate the belovedness of God and God's gift of love and our belovedness as a community and the the value that we hold in love. These people, why? Because they are precisely the opposite of love, our blemishes on your love feast. 
And then we come right on to the exhortations at the end of this epistle. These exhortations, they roll right on through, right off our lips so quickly. But beloved, there he begins his exhortation again with this, you are loved by God. But beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. A couple of comments. The way I have analyzed this is I think that that first statement is the general capstone exhortation. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Then notice a Trinitarian uh, triad that follows. Pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, a Trinitarian triad. But did you notice the interesting order of that? The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Unusual when you do find triads like this in scripture. I think he's flipped the triad around to create a little bit of a sandwich effect, where you have the Spirit mentioned first, the Father, you might say, as the meat of the sandwich in the middle and then, the, then uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the third element there, which highlights, I think, again, the love of God set right in the middle of that Trinitarian formula, such that keeping yourselves in the love of God, I think, becomes a bedrock exhortation to those who find themselves under such pressure and under such temptation and under such discouragement, to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, two questions I'll ask. One is what might that look like in terms of outcome? I'll be very quick here. I think what you see is you see self-giving, self-risking ministry that follows immediately upon that. What's it look like? There it is. Convince some who are in doubt. Save others snatching them out of the fires, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. This kind of work, I'll tell you, is dangerous. Try working with someone who is deep in doubt, and what you will discover is that the reasons they have for doubting, wait for it, the love of God, for doubting the love of God, are sick, they are they are serious. And they're matters that we all struggle with. The presence of evil, of agony, of suffering. The presence of corruption among us and within us. These things all can drive us into such doubt. It's not an easy thing to work with doubt. And yet, here, the exhortation is, go to the doubters and work at convincing them. Work, at those, work with those who are actually partially in the flames, perhaps of even their own loss. And then beware of one's own standing. Um, the, the, the beautiful promise at the end, now to him who is able to keep you from falling. I think the flip side of that beautiful promise right there is this, I would say, sobering truth. Only God can keep us from falling. Only God can do that. That points out how serious the temptations are, how deep and powerful the undercurrent is that moves in a direction opposite to love. 
and opposite to the gospel delivered once to the saints. Only God can keep us from falling. So I think that, that what we see is a picture of people who are saturated with love, find themselves able and willing to step into dangerous currents in order to help folks who are in deep trouble. But my last point is, question is this, how does one keep oneself in the love of God? In a sense, it kind of comes down to that. How do we keep ourselves there so that we know that we're beloved? We know who we are. We know who God is. And we're confident that he will protect us and keep us and bring us out in the end. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Long answer, put in a brief way, go to Wesley's theology class and study the means of grace. Staying in the means of grace is the way to stay in the love of God. And we're here on Wednesday because of one particular means of grace, one very precious one. And in fact, in the Wesley journals, you'll discover that it was often during the Eucharist that people became convinced of the love of God for them. When you come here, you're going to be eating and drinking the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And in your hearts, keep yourselves at Eucharist. May God bless you, beloved.